1: It's Friday, August 14th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at motherjones.com inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming, or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of their new course called Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds.
2: Hey, Inquiring Minds fans, if you're in the Atlanta region on September 4th, come see us doing our first live show at Dragon Con. There's a huge science track, and we're hosting our live podcast on September 4th at 5.30 p.m. with some special guests.
1: One of our special guests is going to be Lucky Yates. You might know him from playing the voice of Dr. Krieger on the show Archer. We're thrilled to have him, and he's going to be joined by us and a panel of other scientists, and we're going to talk about the science of Archer.
2: I can't wait to talk about Piggly.
1: Okay, I don't even know what that is.
2: GMOs and our food have been a big conversation on the show, uh, especially in our recent news segments, and it's a divisive issue for a lot of people, whether we're talking about the health safety, risk to our ecosystem, or the economics associated with food security. So this week, I sought out a new perspective on this that we haven't had on the show. I talked with Fred Perlack, a distinguished science fellow at Monsanto. He's been with the company since 1981, one of the early scientists who developed BT Cotton, and now works with various organizations on technology transfer programs to deliver their seeds to developing nations. I discovered Fred when he did a AMA on Reddit. We'll link to it in the show notes. But I was really impressed with the level of scientific discourse that was happening. There was a lot of deep scientific questions. And I wanted to bring that conversation here. Now, I want to acknowledge, like, there are a lot of people that aren't fans of Monsanto or and not fans of GMOs in general. And personally, I haven't been terribly concerned about the science related to GMOs. We've had extensive discussion about the lack of evidence with health risks, uh, going back to Show 21 with Stephen Novella. But as I started to research the topic more and more, with Fred coming onto the show, I did find some areas that were troubling, if you will. The prevalence of resistance coming into the marketplace, the genetic diversity and impact to ecosystems with these methods, and just questions on oversight and economics, especially when they're branching out into new nations where the controls won't be the same. So I'm wondering, Indre, do you have the same feelings about GM that I do, or do you have a different perspective?
1: Well, you know, I've really focused most of my reading on the sort of health risks and and studies looking at whether or not genetically modified foods are safe to eat. And there, it seems pretty unequivocal that there isn't a lot of evidence that these foods are Less safe than, say, foods that aren't uh, genetically modified, or and in some cases, you know, they they seem to be more safe because they are going through more rigorous testing than, you know, something that you're picking up from um, the corner. So I feel like the science there has, you know, there have been a ton of studies. Um, of course, I'm not an expert in all of them and or any of them, <laughs> and uh, I don't know all of the data, but I haven't. It hasn't certainly hasn't stopped me from buying food that is labeled as GM or that I know is genetically modified. But, you know, it doesn't have a label or whatever. But I think this brings
2: up the interesting quandary about GM products is there's intense polarization from consumers in this area. Like we're scientifically minded. We run an evidence based podcast. So we are making this kind of hyper rational decision that we don't see any uh, studies as effect. But food is really personal. It's an emotional endeavor. So like the idea of farmers being in plight or health safety coming up, I kind of understand that I have some empathy with it. And I tried to, you know, Googling GMOs is basically the most worthless thing that you can do. Like when I Googled it as just like an intro to like doing some research on this, I mean, there's so many pro and anti sites that take all these positions that litter you with like different studies and the pitched battle between these two factions is extremely loud and irritating to somebody that would be in the middle. Uh, Take case in point, this week on Reddit, I saw, again, an AMA with this guy, Kevin Folta. He's a researcher at the University of Florida, Gainesville. And he was hit with a Freedom of Information Act request from US Right to Know, which is a nonprofit located in Oakland, California. The head of a US right to know is Gary Ruskin, who led a campaign to get GMOs labeled in California. And he wanted to ensure that researchers that were participating in the site GMOanswers.com, which is an industry sponsored site, were not taking money from the, the GM companies uh, and wanted to find out if there was sort of a conflict of interest. So he hit a bunch of researchers with this Freedom of Information Act request, uh, which seems actually to me. Pretty reasonable on the surface to hit uh, researchers in that way. The researchers think very differently. They saw it as an act of intimidation. Kevin said uh, in his AMA that it's been very difficult to comply. There's actually a researcher from Davis that answered my question on the AMA. Her name's Allison Von. Einemann from UC Davis, who talked that it's taken uh, Davis lawyers at her institution six months almost to go through the emails because they have to redact all the student information. And the request also incorporated uh, personal correspondence. So they're going through everything these researchers has. And she indicated there's a chilling effect. So there is this battle on both sides. Um, I will note, they did find that Kevin took $25,000 from Monsanto to support travel to education conferences, mostly for outreach, and a number of outlets have have sort of, uh, including Tom Philpot here at Mother Jones, have criticized Kevin for not being more open about that and, and sort of uh, hiding that fact, the closeness of ties to industry.
1: I mean, I actually think in some ways, you know, maybe that was his mistake is not being open about it. But I don't think it's a big deal if a scientist is being paid to travel. I mean, just their travel expenses. I don't mean they're, you know, paid huge fees so that they can talk about their science. Now, you know, does this mean that if if this company is paying you to go to a conference, you're going to be more likely to, you know, only present data that is in favor of that company? I mean, that that is the argument for why these things should be separate. But, you know, I do think that it's important that people are educated you know, regardless of what the data find, I also have been myself involved in a long, protracted legal battle, and I remember when I was told that I needed to provide the, um, you know, opposing counsel with all of the emails related to, you know, this one topic, and it was it felt very violating, and it was like thousands of emails, and it took us literally months to collect this, and it seemed like a complete waste of time. So I get it. You know, if you're a scientist and you just want to get your work done and now you have to literally comb through 3,000 emails to, you know, redact important information, it does feel very bad. And there's certainly a case to be made for um, nonprofit groups who have a particular viewpoint of, you know, a, trying to get at scientists that, you know, for example, there's a lot of um, backlash against scientists who do research on primates, uh, who involve primates in their research. And some of it can be very frightening, you know, people who have you know, felt like they're being persecuted. So I get that side of it. Um, And I, you know, I I know that that's, that's a problem. And, you know, really, just let's just let the scientists do their job.
2: So the silliness for me is that in the end, we're going to spend hundreds of thousand dollars on lawyers going through and redacting all this information, complying with this request, over a $25,000 contribution. That's really what we're going to find here. And that seems to be at least from my perspective as somebody that runs Science Podcast, a distraction away from the conversation we should be having, which is the consequences of the science, and there's real ones. So I hope that's actually what we accomplished today, In part in the conversation with Fred, I will note it's a half hour conversation. We don't nearly touch upon all the things that everyone wants to hear about when it comes to GM. But I will say, I don't think this should be our last conversation about it because most of the technology that we talk about is old technology when it comes to how it's interacting with our food. Monsanto and a number of other companies are definitely using new technologies um, that they're hoping will come to the market, whether it's RNA interference or others, that are going to represent a new area that we need to examine scientifically.
1: And, you know, for me, too, the, the whole food issue, it does touch on something, you know, very deep, in, in deep for people, emotional for people. And- you know, the organic food movement also has its problems, right? Where like that kind of labeling has its own, that we could do a whole show on whether food should be labeled organic and what that means and, and, you know, all that. All that kind of thing. I don't
2: want to do that joke,
1: <laughs> but I think for I, I guess what I what I where I was going with my initial comment about how I'm I'm not overly concerned. I buy you know food. I don't care if it's GM or not, um, but I am worried about the consequences to the environment of GM you know foods that are engineered very well to be too successful, right? I mean, you know, I often think about the potato famine in Ireland. What happened there is they planted one crop. All of a sudden, you know, the weather changed or something happened. I don't even actually know the details. Uh, But people starved because they were relying too heavily on one crop. Um, So what if now we're creating a series of crops that are not as diverse because the Monsanto products or whoever is making the GM food products are just too good. And they're just too tempting for farmers to buy and use and, you know, get a yield on. And we're kind of not leaving Mother Nature with enough diversity to protect ourselves if there is another environmental crisis, say, for example, climate change. Well,
2: I'll be interested to see if your feelings change at all after listening to the interview with Fred. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Fred Perlak from Monsanto.
1: This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off the new series, Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. In 12 half-hour episodes, this series by Professor Lonnie A. Gamble, who's the co-director of the Sustainable Living Program at Maharishi University of Management, will teach you sustainable living practices that will help you reduce your home's energy consumption, for example, by 75% or more and enjoy the same or better service, might help you heat your home without fossil fuels and produce enough clean energy to contribute back to the grid. Or leave it altogether. It could help you reduce or potentially eliminate your water bill, which for people in California could be a very useful thing. Grow your own pesticide-free fruits, vegetables, and herbs year-round. So if you are concerned about GM foods, maybe here's your answer: make effective cleaning products at home that are safer and cheaper than anything you can buy at the store. But this special offer of eighty percent off of the fundamentals of sustainable living is only valid for a limited time. So don't delay. Go to thegreatcourses.com/inquiringminds to find out more about. special offer, or any of their 500 other series um, that are offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash minds. So for those of our listeners who are going to Dragon Con this year, this is an awesome conference in Atlanta every year in which people can learn about science fiction and fantasy and all the other cool things that nerds like us are really into.
2: Like dressing up?
1: cosplaying as it's called i hear um we are doing a live taping of a show and in fact our guest is lucky yates who you may know lucky
2: yates from his exceptional debut on good eats or more recently as dr krieger on one of my favorite shows archer
1: So, yes, it's been fun to do homework and have to watch Archer shows as a part of that. But we are thrilled to be doing this uh, live taping. If you're going to DragonCon, please check us out. We are on uh, at 530 on Saturday, September 4th. And we look forward to seeing you there.
2: Fred Perleck, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
3: Thank you, Kishore. Thank you for having me on your program.
2: So, I want to start with a little bit on who you are and the science work that you've done at Monsanto before we dive into the science itself.
3: Sure. Um, I started at Monsanto in 1981. Uh, I started our BT program. Uh, I worked on BT as a graduate student and as a postdoc and came to Monsanto where. They told me that my only job was to utilize the recent advances in genetic engineering and apply them to the improvement of agriculture. My past work on BT was a good entry to trying to identify BT genes and eventually put them into plants. That was in September of 1981.
2: So let's, for our audience, define what BT is. We hear that term a lot, BT corn, BT soy, BT cotton. What does the BT actually stand for?
3: The initials BT stand for Bacillus thuringiensis. It is a common microorganism found in the soil with the unusual characteristic that it produces a a protein, um, a crystalline protein. And this particular protein is very active against specific insect pests, the lepidopterous insects particularly. Uh, It's well known, it's been well known for uh, centuries actually, and it's been used as a microbial insecticide back from the 1950s.
2: And the idea of how you took the gene that essentially makes this protein and shifted it into the plant, can you tell us a little bit about that process of how you got that gene to express in the plants?
3: The process itself is a twofold process. First, it's the isolation of the gene. We isolated a gene from a strain of Bacillus thuringiensis in the early 1980s. Helen Whiteley at University of Washington at Seattle was the first to show that she could isolate a gene and express it in E. coli, another microorganism. We isolated the gene and then tried putting it into plants, but the gene did not express all that well, Um, well enough to see activity, and we did field tests in 1987, but we realized we had to make specific modifications to the gene to get it to work well in plants.
2: And was this an easy process to shift it to plants, especially uh, cotton? And I have a follow-up question about cotton.
3: When we look at bacteria, bacteria are fairly simple and straightforward, especially Bacillus thuringiensis. And the sequence of DNA that is found in Bt is particularly well-suited for bacteria. When you put it into plants, it doesn't communicate quite, quite so well. The plants are much more sophisticated in how they read the DNA And they saw hidden messages for modification and changes to the DNA. What we were able to do, David Fischoff and myself, was to hypothesize how the plants were misreading the DNA to chop it up. And we made the sentence or the piece of DNA so simple that the plants could read it only one way. And it worked extremely well. We increased the level of BT expression, expression of that gene in the BT protein in plants over a thousand fold, and that made it commercially viable.
2: And how does this actually impact the the pests, the Lepidoptera, that are attacking these plants?
3: Well, the Lepidoptera, when we first put it in as the wild type gene or the native gene from from the bacteria, we could control a good a number of, of the pests, but not all of them, and not to a point where it was commercially viable in a number of different crops. The Lepidopteran pests are particularly devastating. They um, uh, they go by the name of tomato fruitworm, cotton bollworm, tobacco budworm, corn earworm, and they're among the most devastating pests. And the hard part for controlling these insects is that they bore into the bowl or into the fruit or into the stem and spraying insecticides doesn't touch them. They're, they're in a sanctuary inside the plant. By cutting them off early when the moths would lay their eggs on the plants and they would take a couple of bites, they never got to the point of causing damage if the level of protein of the gene we put in is expressed at a high enough level. The the Bt protein in that gene is so valuable because it's highly specific and very active in terms of its potency against those insects.
2: How long did it take to start the development of this before it hit the market?
3: (laughs) That took uh, 15 years. I started in September of 1981. We made it to the marketplace in the beginning of 1996.
2: And can you tell us about the process, that environmental and regulatory process that you had to go through in that 15-year period? Because that 15 years wasn't all just iterating on the science, I'm
3: assuming. Um, That's correct. We had isolated the gene and put it into plants and transformed it into tobacco in 1988 or so. And then we had a plant that we felt would have commercial levels of activity by the beginning, 1991, 1992. All along the way, we were involved in trying to set up all the different tests that we would need to satisfy both the EPA and the USDA. Did it express in the plants? Is it the protein that we expected it to be? Does it have the same level of activity? Does it hurt unintended insects? Is it any different from the native protein? So we did tests against honeybees and earthworms and other other kinds of insects, all all confirming that the protein we put in behaved just like the native protein produced in BT. That's used as a microbial insecticide. There were also toxicology assays, allergenicity assays, all to confirm that the protein uh, would behave the way we anticipated it would.
2: Now, that gene can change over time, or at least genes in in, uh, a number of different animals and plant species can change over time. Were you able to test how this gene functions in multiple generations or in the age of a plant in terms of how that impacts the the resistance to these different pests?
3: That's a good question because the, um, the protein actually behaves just the way other proteins in the plant behave. In terms of its expression in the plant, it's most active in young, fresh-growing tissue, and it decreases on a per gram basis as the leaves get older. It tends to be higher in um, the tissues that, not surprisingly, are more um, attractive to insects. So the young leaves, the fresh-growing tips of the plant, have the highest levels of Bt. Just like any other protein in the plant, it cycles through so that it has a half-life. It will gradually degrade even within the plant during the growing season. If you take a look at a cotton plant, the oldest leaves on a cotton plant are not um, subject to much insect attack because there's relatively little protein in those plant leaves. And as a consequence, the insects prefer the fresher, greener, younger tissue. Um, the Bt protein behaves in a very similar way. We did a large number of tests to see how durable it was, how it would affect our resistance management strategies, how it would bring value to the farmers, and what the susceptibilities or areas of um, watch out might be for the farmers.
2: And this seems like a basic question, but why cotton? Uh, of all the crops that BT is in, uh, that's the one that, uh, that I'm, I was sort of surprised to see as, as one of the early developments.
3: Well, in the United States, the um, back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, cotton is a relatively minor crop uh, as a row crop. There's, oh, somewhere between 10 and 15 million acres of cotton during that time, whereas there's maybe 60, 70 million acres of wheat, soybeans, corn. Less than 10% of the crop is cotton, but... At the time, 50% of the chemical insecticides were used on cotton. Uh, They had the biggest need in terms of protection from the lepidopteran insects, and that was, therefore, the greatest value. In 1995, the year before we launched Bolgard, uh, the tobacco budworm had broken through all the—by resistance, had broken through all the chemical insecticides that farmers in the South were using— They were spraying their fields five, ten times a year and unable to hold those insects back. Australia was in a similar situation. They were spraying their fields 18, 20 times a year and still sustaining significant damage. So our timing was pretty good.
2: Now, clearly there has been... A number of consumers that have come up that have that are skeptical of the the science and the process that you guys went through, right? you know whether it's the health effects of of having this kind of um, uh, genetic engineering or the impacts to the environment I'm wondering if any of those concerns actually impacted the the development and the science itself that you are undertaking
3: i it it does of course safety is a big. Aspect for us at Monsanto and myself as a scientist, I didn't want to be in a situation where I was part of an invention or technology that actually did more harm than good. Um, Many of us at Monsanto are very idealistic scientists who want to improve agriculture. Uh, We want to produce durable products that provide solutions to farmers We welcomed all the scrutiny. We did every test we could possibly think of that was reasonable to determine whether or not this would be a valuable product. Uh, We're driven by our vision and our commitment to a future. Um, And as a consequence, I think we we really put that to the forefront.
2: Just personally, do you have – an understanding and empathy why these concerns have developed and why they exist? And are there ones that sort of speak to you more than others?
3: As a scientist and someone who's fairly skeptical to begin with, yeah, of course I can understand. I mean, I tell people I still can't understand why the gasoline price I pay at the pump has anything to do with the price of crude oil. I just don't get it. But that's okay. Okay. So I can easily understand the concerns that people have when we start talking about things like their food or the environment. And I, I guess the um, part I'm, I'm convinced about is that we've gone through 20 years and we haven't seen any upsets or any concerns, anything that went out of the ordinary. I feel very comfortable with the technology that we have and how we're developing it.
2: There are a couple of things that do concern me, uh, sure. that I, I think are, are pressing, that are issues today, and the first among them is resistance. There's a whole suite of products that uh, Monsanto makes that are, you know, Roundup ready. You know, essentially they have, um, they're bred with resistance to the herbicide glyphosate or Roundup, and what we've seen is resistant weeds sort of emerge um, uh, in the last fifteen years. Can you talk about resistance as a area of concern and and what you're doing to uh, to mitigate that issue?
3: In in um, there's two different kinds of resistance: insect resistance, of course, and and weed resistance. And I'll deal a little bit with the insect resistance first. Um, when we launched this product, we met with the all the leading entomologists that we could find, both from Australia and from the U.S. And we came up with a refuge program. In other words, 20% of all the BT crops would have a refuge close by to minimize the development of active resistance.
2: By refuge, you mean like an area of crops that uh, were essentially non-this seed. They were just sort of the regular seed that the insects could, could go feed upon. That's correct.
3: So, for example, when we would sell seed to a farmer, he would have 80% of his field with BT and 20% of his field he could treat with traditional insecticides, but there would be no selection pressure for the BT. Some of the entomologists who worked this out with us um, convinced us that it was all about product durability. And as a company, of course, we want a product that persists in the marketplace so that we can recoup our investment. Development of resistance in three to five years does us no good. And I'm proud to say we implemented that program and the insect control, and it's worked quite well, and we still haven't had major resistance breakthrough to the BT genes, for example, in cotton. Although there have been instances of resistance in the corn rootworm program, but there's some unusual characteristics that would lend to resistance development. As a scientist, I can easily believe resistance is pretty much inevitable, and all you can really do is hold it off by the strategies that you utilize. In the case of Roundup resistance and having herbicide tolerance and then the development of superweeds that are resistant to Roundup, that was pretty much inevitable as well. Um, especially in a weed like um, pigweed or palmer amaranth, which is the major problem in the south and it's gradually moving north. It is resistant to a large number of herbicides already, so the burden of its control fell to Roundup. Now, you could argue that we might have been able to hold off resistance and that we could have been more more insistent with our customers to develop better strategies to hold off resistance. But these weeds were destined to be resistant to Roundup. And one important thing for you though, Kishore, is that when we say super weeds, they're just like other weeds. They just don't die when you spray Roundup over them. It doesn't affect their susceptibility to other herbicides. So the term super weeds is a little bit of a misnomer i get the idea that these things look more robust and more healthy in the field but they're just like other weeds
2: i've seen that some of the next steps are to develop further herbicide resistant crops like whether it's 24d or others as sort of the next cycle to to delay and fight off resistance you you actually you think that's the the way forward or is this Really, about how we use the crops, how the farmers are using the crops, that's so going to to really make a difference in in resistance development.
3: I think the answer to that is both. The development of additional herbicide resistance traits will certainly benefit farmers and provide more tools for a farmer to be able to deal with resistance issues. If you're a farmer out in the field, you have weeds, you have to control them. Otherwise, they'll rob the sunlight, they'll rob the moisture, they'll rob the nutritional characteristics such as fertilizer that you put down. You can't tolerate weeds in your field in modern agriculture. As a consequence, new tools such as herbicide resistance to dicamba or even 2,4-D, those bring issues with them, but they can be managed what i've seen and very i'm very encouraged by is that farmers now understand that there is not an endless pool of these things much like doctors in the use of antibiotics to treat diseases farmers are understanding that these tools are valuable parts of their of their uh, repertoire to take on the issues they have in the field and they're doing a very good job of stewardship um, that's quite a big difference from when I first started.
2: It seems like so much of this is dependent on the communication and relationship that you have with the farmers, the ones that are utilizing the product, because the product has to be utilized in a certain way to maximize its longevity. What does that process look like in terms of how you communicate with farmers and how you encourage this behavior Because you're battling against farming, which is like a cultural practice. I would think farmers have their ways of doing farming, and it's not easy to come in and and sort of say, you know, you need to use this product in a certain way.
3: I think farmers have... um are very open to possibilities. I think they see what's happened in terms of the development of resistance to Roundup and in some of their fields. Now, Roundup is still a very effective herbicide on a large number of weeds that a farmer finds in his field. So he'll continue to use Roundup and a Roundup-ready system uh, to cover those other weeds. What he comes to realize, and farmers are very adaptable, is that they have to change Um, in terms of doing things like crop rotation, management of their topsoil, conservation tillage, um, rotating uh, management systems. And it's all about communication. I know I just met with um, some of our folks who've been working on dicamba cotton that was just released to the field. And Uh, farmers are not allowed because of the way regulations are to spray over the top. And Monsanto's goal was to have at least five contact points with each farmer informing him of what he can or cannot do in his field. That means farmer has to meet with a Monsanto employee. He gets a letter. He gets a a visit from the crop extension agent. He gets, when he buys the seed, it's got a big label on it telling him what he can or can't do. In general, I think most farmers are very, very um, conscientious and law-abiding citizens. I I have a lot of friends who are farmers and I'm always impressed with Uh, Their ability to get things done.
2: How does that translate when you shift away from a a U.S.-based model and you start to go to third-world countries? Because you mentioned off the top that you work on a program that's really around transferring seeds to uh, developing nations through through these um, partnerships. Do we see this issue of how you communicate, how you work with farmers, really uh, change as we go to different uh, climates and countries?
3: It does change. Um, The work I was doing with the partnerships is more a philanthropic work, and I'll talk about that in a second. But in the commercial sense, when we launched in Australia, we launched uh, Bolgard cotton in Australia. Bolgard is the BT cotton, I'm sorry. The We launched in Australia, in India, South America, and there are challenges in each individual country in working with the local staff there and trying to identify how we can provide a sense of urgency in terms of following our stewardship concerns. All our seed company partners agree to follow stewardship um, guidelines that we put forth, but it's difficult. In a country like India, There's relatively smallholder farmers with small, small fields. A farmer in India buys a packet of seed, which is 454 grams, which is one pound. He has maybe one to two acres to farm. Uh, A refuge management strategy, even when he gets the seeds for free, isn't always followed. And there are so many farmers, it's hard to follow up on it. That is one of the biggest challenges that we face is those stewardship issues in places like India and other small farmers.
2: Do you want to talk a little bit about the philanthropic efforts, like the idea of providing seeds uh, for free or for low cost? What uh, That seems to run contrary to the idea of of a seed company that, that has a for-profit model.
3: When I look at it, I, I look at our partnerships and We have three things to offer. We have money, we have technology, and we have people who know the technology. Um, Money doesn't separate us. The Gates Foundation, for example, has tons of money, but they don't know traditional plant breeding the way we do. They don't have people with that level of expertise. So a good example is a project that we've been involved with with a number of collaborators called WEMA, or Water Efficient Maize for Africa. It is a large collaboration, a very big project that involves Monsanto, it involves CIMIT, which is a public um, center for research in maize and wheat located in Mexico, but it's a global co- global organization, the Gates Foundation, the Howard Buffett Foundation, and USAID. The goal is to provide seed to farmers, which has improved genetics for drought tolerance. In other words, plants that have the ability to grow with less water. In this particular situation, it's the largest plant breeding program in all of Africa, but big problems require big solutions. And it's not just providing the genetics, but it's providing all the things that go along with it. For example, if you're a farmer in the United States and you plant your corn seed, you expect 95 to 98% of those seeds to come up. You're a farmer in Africa. You saved your seed from the previous year. Maybe you get 50% to grow. Maybe not. And the seeds, when they come up, are all over the place. Some some grow at different rates than others. And you have this um, mixture of healthy and sickly-looking plants. And you don't have the resources to deal with it. In the case of those farmers in Africa getting them good seed with good genetics and a good background with good knowledge, the agronomics to be able to manage his crop is how you will make that farmer a better farmer. And the tools for just good seed, even non-transgenic seed, just quality seed that's affordable to him where 100% of the seeds would grow so that he can manage his crop. You see the the plants all tassel at the same time, meaning that the pollen will fall at the same time and all of them silk at the same time so that the pollen falls on the silk. That improves the number of kernels that'll be in each ear and each ear will have more viable kernels. That's the difference between making it and not making it. So these kinds of projects have to encompass all sorts of technologies that one offs aren't gonna cut it and you have to get a rising tide that will lift all boats in that in that game.
2: You mentioned the drought tolerance crops. I'm curious if this is a response to climate change and the threats to food security and, and just growing of food that you see that you see out there or is there another reason that drought tolerance is an area that you're really focusing on?
3: Drought tolerance is a is good area of focus because it's a constant issue for farmers in Africa. And it's going to increase if we believe what we hear about climate change. By the way, you won't find many climate deniers at Monsanto. And I think if you talk to farmers, they'll tell you that their weather has been changing. Whether they're in Africa or Kansas or Illinois, they know things are changing. They know they're going to have to adopt. In this particular case, the WEMA program is with traditional genetics, finding varieties that just do better with less water. And these farmers can make inroads for that. Now, eventually, that technology or drought-tolerance genes can work in that, and they can move forward. Um, But that's going to have to be up to the African countries whether they want to take on those new technologies.
2: Now, the technology used to to make BT uh, products in the in the '80s is now behind the times. I don't want to make you sound old, but there's <laughs> novel techniques like like CRISPR coming onto the scene um, around DNA editing, lack of a better term. How is Monsanto um, approaching sort of new developments in in engineering as it applies to to food, or are you or are you? relatively comfortable with the technology that's been in place for a number of years.
3: We we clearly want to always be on the cutting edge of technology. And it is true, Kishore, I am old. That work was a long time ago. Um, since we introduced Bolgard, there's Bolgard 2 and there'll soon be Bolgard 3. In other words, stacking of several genes, one on top of another, to provide more resistance management options for the farmer, all within the same plant. The reason, it, and and we've grown as as time has gone on. Every time we generate a new transgenic event or variety, we're constantly incorporating new techniques to do this. The CRISPR technology that you mentioned in the in the DNA editing is really fascinating technology, but it's right at its very infancy. The characteristics and the the potential for that technology is pretty pretty big. Um, But I think we probably don't even understand how dramatically it's going to change things. Uh, For instance, uh, things like RNAi or or the RNA interfering particles are now coming to the marketplace. That technology has been around for 20 years. Just how do you utilize it in a way that makes sense and is complementary to your program as opposed to the newest and latest? These new technologies it it, it is um, for me it is um, very exciting work and it gives me a lot of faith in and the the future because these technologies are so advanced and so clever um, and there are so many good scientists to utilize them that I'm very, very enthused.
2: We've talked a lot about farmer and the and the word technology here and the relationship Monsanto has to both of those. But it points to a potentially interesting tension here, is that really Monsanto's customers are the farmers. That's where the relationship lies. But there's also the end user. There's you and me that are you know eating the food products being generated. Is there a tension internally in how some of your products are more geared towards you know, producing better yield for the farmer, but not necessarily producing a better end product for the consumer.
3: We, um, our products were dictated uh, to the farmers because that's who we're used to talking to. Um, Our company for a long time was very good at talking to farmers and very good at talking to Wall Street. We didn't really feel obligated to talk to people in between because quite frankly, there wasn't a lot of interest What's encouraging is that there is a lot of interest in food. There's a lot of interest in sustainability and not just among farmers and Wall Street but people like you and me, people who are concerned about their food, where it comes from, how it's grown, where it's grown. I'm really enthused by all the dialogue and I know it takes a little getting used to when people call us mon Satan or slam us but... Um, I think the dialogue around food is absolutely critical for our future. The trade-offs. There's nothing. There's no free lunch. There's all sorts of trade-offs for any technology. But getting people to talk about their food and understand where it's grown is a positive, healthy sign for our economy and for the long-term future. So it's kind of an. It's kind. I have a kind of different twist on it. I'm really enthused about that. It's
2: kind of funny to hear you say you're enthused given how much um negativity can surround your organization and I'm curious if there's anything that particularly strikes you as as being a, a a massive area of misunderstanding that the consumer has in relation to the science itself especially from the perspective of somebody that's been involved in the development of BT now going on 30 years
3: yeah I think the biggest min- misconception is when they talk about genetic engineering, they, some people I've spoken to have the idea that we've changed everything about that plant. The way I look at it is that a plant like cotton has the genetic capability for 50,000 genes or so. Uh, it's like 50,000 books on the shelf in the library. All we're doing is putting one more book on the shelf right next to those 50,000. That's a very minor, very precise change that we're talking about. Um, when people understand the specifics around things like that, they get it. They'll, okay, I can understand how you would do it. And oh, by the way, it makes farmers more productive and makes sustainable intensification more feasible. It allows him to be a better steward of his land, to adopt practices that will sustain his farm and sustain the surrounding communities. I think people start to understand that. It's hard to get it out in a 30-second time bite and it's hard to build that confidence that goes along with it. But it's a challenge we're going to have to deal with.
2: Projecting forward, what do you see as the future of GM crops, especially around the science? Is there areas that we really, that uh, Monsanto's especially going to be focused on, uh, whether it's need driven from the farmer or for the consumer?
3: I think we're seeing a few things that are more consumer focused. The innate potatoes and the Arctic apples are two good examples of of products that came out that have primary consumer benefit benefits. That technology has been around, oh, for 20 years. Um, the bruising technology and the browning technology in both those products. They're bringing them forward and it's going to be a, a um, an interesting dialogue around something like an eight potatoes because – this their technology will cut down on bruising and cut down on food waste much of our food that is produced in the world today is wasted 30 to 50% of fruits and vegetables for example don't don't ever make it to the plate they're lost in between we can't afford that going forward if we're going to deal with 9 billion people we're going to have to be better technologies like this that can cut down Waste according to their website, 20, 30 percent. That's pretty amazing. I think there's uh, an, uh, opportunities for a lot of different products to have those characteristics and eventually we'll figure it out. This is relatively new technology and there's lots of applications we haven't even considered.
2: RGM crops going to be part of the, the future of how we approach food? In a significant way, even more so than we see now, or is this something where it's going to be part of a a larger landscape where gm is is contributing but not all encompassing of our food supply?
3: I guess the way I would answer that is um, the we'll have to see <laughs> from my perspective, GM crops are tools they're not for everything. there's a reason that gm Cotton or, you know, GM cotton, GM corn, GM soybeans are the crops that, that took on those characteristics. I think each instance should be viewed by itself and what it brings and what it doesn't bring. It's not a technology that answers all questions. It's a very powerful tool for the farmer. Um, but a friend of mine once told me that just because you can cut lumber doesn't mean you can build a house. So there has to be the right fit for a GM crop to make a difference. And so I think even as a scientist, it's kind of a wait-and-see attitude as to, okay, what, what sorts of good things can you bring forward that are going to make a difference?
2: Before we wrap up, where do you recommend people going to learn more information about um, yourself and GM products?
3: If they want to know more about Monsanto, it's discover.monsanto.com. If they have general questions about GMOs, there's a website uh, called gmoanswers.com where experts, not all from Monsanto, answer the questions, any question. And if you'd like to contact me, you can get me at Fred Perlack on Twitter, and I'd look forward to hearing from you.
2: Fred Perlack, thank you so much for joining us in Inquiring Minds.
3: Thanks again, Kishore.
1: That was a really interesting interview, <laughs> and uh, it, I, you know, I it's so funny. I sort of had in my mind this notion that a Monsanto scientist is going to be super aggressive. It's going to give you a lot of talking points. It's going to be very show-many and salesmany And first of all, he did not come off like that at all.
2: He sounded like a, a very sweet man.
1: But also a very thoughtful man who's really passionate about, you know, trying to do well and to try to make uh, a contribution to society that goes beyond just the bottom line. Um, And, you know, certain things. Did, he, he surprised me when he was talking about, um, so at the top of the show, we mentioned that one potential problem in, uh, that we might see in, in the wide use of, of GM products is that, you know, there could be a resistance that's developed by the pests to, you know, a particular, um, food and so forth. And that you, we could create super weeds and super bugs that are going to be even more difficult, uh, to combat. And the fact that, the scientist himself was concerned about this because it would affect his bottom line it was you know i mean i guess i should have realized that would be the case but it that was kind of a revelation
2: so a lot of the criticism of monsanto around resistance goes back to uh, their initial patent filings on this seeds indicated that resistance wasn't going to be an issue and i think there's a couple ways they've defended that but i think that's you know some of the criticism centers in that area the resistance argument that really Bugs me is uh, is how analogous this is to antibiotic resistance, which is something I'm deeply troubled by. And it started to shift uh, like my viewpoint. Like I thought of Monsanto entering this conversation as a food technology company. I be, should be thinking of them as a biotech company, and the same problems that face biotech companies, whether it's the length of time it takes to bring a product to market, the potential ramifications of their sort of drug, lack of a better term, uh, being in a uncontrolled environment for a period of time and what can develop. And I'm not making the unintended consequences from like the gene expression argument here. I'm talking about the resistance development. Those are things that are troubling to me more now than pre-interview because – the place I got really stuck is this idea of the crop management cycle. So like planting the refuge, so the 20% of your cropland needs to be a non-GM product because that's going to help with the issues of, of biodiversity and resistance development. It makes 100% sense. And I thought about, and I pushed him on this a little bit, like I thought about, oh, in the US with like your relationship with the farmers, you could probably manage that. If I start to expand like How is that going to work in India? How is that going to work in rural China? How is that going to work in Indonesia where like basic infrastructure around communication isn't there as much? Uh, so I had some reticence about his answers there. It was unsatisfactory to me on some level.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what he's saying is that, you know, in consultation with entomologists, they've realized the importance of having a refuge, right? That this is a real issue, but they're certainly not going to stop selling their product you know, two countries that can't guarantee that there is going to be this, this refuge, right? I oh, mean, of course not. I mean, they're a business. They're a business. And, and that is frightening. I completely agree with you. And it makes me, you know, it makes me wonder about sort of corporate ethics and where we are kind of worldwide about that. Is, is that something that, what can science tell us about the importance of, uh, of a, of a company sticking by its ethical guns? <laughs>
2: it It bothers me so much less about that than um the idea of like in biotech we talk about like uh products that have patents like having an eighteen year patent life cycle and they try to maximize profits during that return. If we apply that like thinking here, we have a situation where they're actually going to try to develop processes that minimize that resistance develop both because. A, it's the right thing to do scientifically, but B, because it maximizes their return on investment. And I don't think they would be shy about saying that either. But the concern is that we don't have controls on how long that is here. Like we're in an environment where we don't know what that timeline is. So some of the big – Arguments about like this is about yield increase and feeding seven billion people. While there's good evidence to show like it does increase yield and it it you know prevents like tilling of the soil, which includes runoff and all these other benefits. That feeding seven billion isn't like a oh we snap our fingers and we fed seven billion. I'm concerned about how long can this product last when they have a 13 year life cycle from development to approval, and now we're in a situation where public opinion of GMs is like 30%. So I can't imagine that process is going to get any faster.
1: Except that I also think that in some ways, this really is a high class problem. I mean, we are talking about whether or not we want our foods labeled as GM or organic or what have you in this country. But frankly, there are a lot of people in the world that are starving that would take food, <laughs> regardless of whether it's GM or, you know, as long as it's food. So, um, you know, I, 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 there's also a part of me that doesn't want to take this too far and, and, you know, wants to acknowledge the fact that we have a company here. And look, I I mean, I don't know about whether there is another company that's doing it better or, or more efficiently. Um, I don't know. But, you know, we, we have at least, well, let, let me say this. We have a group of scientists whose goal is to try to provide food for a portion of the you know, world that just doesn't have any.
2: I will acknowledge that uh, there are a number of questions that I didn't get to that I'm sure the audience wanted. Fred made a point of telling me that he wanted to engage further with anyone that had further questions about this and that you can reach out to him on Twitter. He's at Fred Perlak,
1: And we should also spell out his last name. So it's P-E-R-L-A-K, Fred Perlack.
2: He also pointed people to the Monsanto Science website, which is discover.monsanto.com. Uh, I'm
1: less interested in that, but I liked the gmlanswers.com. Yeah.
2: I really think that, um, actually, I, he provided really thoughtful answers on that Reddit AMA. So if there are listeners that have further questions for, for Fred, I would definitely reach out to him on Twitter uh, and let him ex- expand on some remaining questions that you may have.
1: So that's it for another episode. I want to assure those of you who found this episode difficult to listen to or are, you know, really <laughs> fervently disagreeing with some of the things that Kishore and I have said or that uh, Fred has said, that we are also um, working on getting uh, someone else on the show soon enough that will talk about some of the issues that we didn't cover um, and that it has a, has a less positive view of GM foods. Let's, let's put it that way. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash podcast, And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, tips for how to grow your own food or anything else you'd like to minds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming, or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of their new course, Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Hey, and if you're going to be in Atlanta over the Labor Day weekend, be sure to check out uh, our live taping at Dragon Con on Saturday, September 4th, 530. We are going to be interviewing Lucky Yates. He's the voice of Dr. Krieger on Archer and uh, a panel of scientists. We're going to talk about the science of Archer. So come see us.
2: Jazz Hands. Inquiring Minds is produced by Super Weed Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic. Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist. Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, CityLab, Medium, and the Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rianjian.
1: And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at IndreVis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. You can send me hate tweets at ScienceKish. See you next week.